Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Christ is indeed the solid ground. We often find ourselves sinking in the sand throughout the week as we rest on ourselves. And so we call our, uh, God calls us to confession in 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. This will be applying to the message as well. 2 Timothy 2, 22. Hear God's word. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Thus far the reading of God's word. Social media and talking heads have trained us often to perfect the art of quarreling when scripture calls us to teach gently and to teach patiently. Uh, yesterday I was at a conference in Heartland that in part addressed Proposal 3 on our ballot in November. And I asked the speaker, what can we do to fight that proposal? And his answer was this, talk to people that you know who are in the middle on this. Extended family members who might be against abortion themselves but want to give others freedom of choice, quote unquote. Really? Freedom to kill babies with no restrictions, no need for parental approval, whatever the age. You see, gentleness in teaching doesn't mean mincing words, but we should not berate, we should not insult either. In one sense, people swear because they don't have a better vocabulary. We also can insult others in our thoughts. We're just repulsed by the other side, say, because we aren't ready with an answer for the hope that is within us. Gentleness means loving our enemies as we seek to persuade them of the truth. The temptation to frustration and ungodly wrath is strong, but we must not be overcome by evil, rather overcome evil with good. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Oh come, let us worship. Heavenly Father, as we continue to turn to you in your word, we ask that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this with the psalmist, that Lord, we do seek to be true to your word. So help us to understand it. Help us to, uh, in our hearts, be loyal to it. And give us the courage to live it out as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We turn now to Titus chapter 1 for the sermon text. We looked at the first nine verses last week, the rest of chapter 1 today. So we'll begin at verse 10 of Titus 1. Hear God's infallible word. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, 
whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it as we attend it in faith. How now shall we live? This is the sermon series I've been going through. What we have here before us today is the idea that we need elders to silence false teaching. That we need elders to point the church to the truth. We need elders to work with pastors to rule well in mutual accountability. And as I mentioned, I'm going to look at some, some of that comes from 1 Timothy 5, not just from Titus 1 here. So once we get through these verses, then flip over a few pages back to 1 Timothy 5 and we'll keep going there. Um, one thing I wanted to say in an introduction, as I'm preaching through Titus with a, with a focus on elders like that, we have an elder candidate currently, right? And I talked about this with him before, uh, so he, he's approving of this message. Um, it may seem a bit awkward to you, like my messengers are kind of just pointed right at Tim, but that's not the case. You, you should know that he and I have discussed this ahead of time. Independently, we both came to the idea that this topic would be helpful and timely. So that, that, that would be helpful for you to know, possibly. And besides, I'm really hoping that this edifies the whole church to think through uh, church leadership. So the direct application here isn't just to myself or to Tim, but also to possible future elders at Christ Church and, and to all of us as we think about how the church lives together. So that's the idea. So let's dive in here. First, uh, verse 10. There are many insubordinate, idle talkers and deceivers. Uh, and don't miss the word for. Uh, we start kind of in the middle of a thought here, right? This is part B of a, of a thought that Paul is having. What did he say at first? Uh, he reminds Titus he left him there to appoint elders in Crete. And then verse 6, he tells him what kind of men they have to be. But now, why at all? Why an elder at all? What's the point of that? That's verse 10. Because there are insubordinate people who have to be st- stopped. The, the early church forged a lot of theology uh, first, second, third century, in response to false teaching, right? We have the apostles, the Nicene creeds, mainly because someone said something wrong about who Jesus was. And the church responded and said, no, that's wrong. We've got to say the right thing. That's basically the function of the elder today. That, that's a main thing that elders need to do, to, to notice when something's going off the rails in, in our thoughts, in our practice, and correct that and call us back to the right path. Same pattern happens today. Um, years ago, there was a TV show called Kids Say the Darndest Things. Anybody remember that? It's really old. I think Bill Cosby hosted it at one point. Uh, I, I, I think I could fill a book at this point with a similar thing called Christians Say the Darndest Things. Right? Sometimes we just kind of have wacky ideas. 
and I mean church members, say the darndest things sometimes. Yeah, sometimes we just we go a little off the rails mentally and we need reining in. That's hard to imagine when we think of ourselves, right? We assume, I'm always on point. I, I know what the word says. I'm, what's the word they use today? I, I'm based, right? I'm, I'm there, right? Not always. Sometimes we need a little bit of, well, hold on. And we all need that from time to time. So Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in verse 5, tells them what they should be like. But the first reason he gives for having elders at all is to refute error, to silence false teaching. Right? The word silence isn't in the New King James that I'm using. I think it's in the ESV. That's rather striking. One of the first functions of an elder is to silence error. Wow. And, that, and this is because Paul's in a or Titus, I should say, is in a church setting there in Crete where the church is just forming and there's a lot of immature and Cretan-like people who are, wanting to, who are seeing this new thing form and kind of want to take advantage of it, exploit that for their own selfish purposes. Now, you've got to keep things going on an apostolic teaching uh, standard. That's what um, Paul is telling Titus here. So elders need to, appoint, uh, to oppose <clears throat> error. Now, we often think of elders as kind of the big brains of the, of the operation, right? They're the smart ones. And that's partly true. That's part of the idea. But also notice something else going on here. There's a level of moral courage needed. And that's different than being smart, right? You might know the right thing to say, but not have the courage to say it. Um, this is something I, that struck me again yesterday when I was at the conference. Um, uh, Matt Walsh was there, and he, he's one of those who's had the moral courage to say things that, that aren't being said. And it, he even pointedly said, a lot of churches and pastors aren't saying these things, and it, it kind of has fallen to me to say them. Where are you guys? <laughs> that was part of his message. That's really important. Elders, leaders in the church, have to have the moral courage to actually stand up and say, hey, no, what you're saying is wrong. That's not right. This is the truth. So uh, the church needs people officially designated to lay down those boundaries. That's the idea. Now, why would that be? Why can't we just kind of do that together? Well, I've pastored in churches where the elder's wife thought that she could lay down those lines. And she would talk to all the ladies and say, well, here at our church, our ladies don't do this or that. We don't dress that way. We don't judge about that. We don't work outside the home. Whatever it is, all kinds of different opinions. The point is, someone not an elder assumes that they can say where the lines are. And that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. So uh, that's why we read from uh, 2 Timothy 2, uh, where Paul tells Timothy, you you need to uh, correct uh, those in opposition gently. And that's also why we read from Matthew 22. I love that um, example of Jesus himself. When he's talking with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that whole passage we read, that's all that is, is him gently correcting false teaching, right? The Sadducees, you're sadly mistaken about the resurrection, right? The Pharisees, they ask, what's the greatest commandment? He's actually kind of on, on point with the Pharisees over that. The Pharisees all basically thought that was the greatest commandment too. But that's another topic for another time. But Jesus uh, knew how to teach uh, so that he was teaching God's word, correcting those in error. You know, that, that first por- portion of that reading, the Sadducees, they're playing a gotcha question with Jesus. 
right? Well, you had five brothers, who, seven brothers, who all had this woman in the resurrection. Well, that's going to be absurd. The resurrection's absurd. That, that's their point. So you have to have men of moral courage who can stand up and say, I'm not the one being absurd here. You're the one who's being absurd. That, that's what Jesus does. That's what elders are called sometimes to do as well. So that's uh, verses 10 and 11. You see that. Their mouths must be stopped. Silenced is the idea. And again, you, you've got a context there that is rather foreign to us, but it does happen. You know, false teachers who come in, who subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not, right? They, they get, they get the, the wife of the household on board, and the wife kind of runs the house. So then all of a sudden, you've got the whole house following this false teacher. That does happen sometimes, and, and sometimes more than we realize. So that, that Paul was noticing that, pointing it out to Titus. Have to watch out for that. So uh, on to verse 12 then. Why Paul gives more reason. One of them, a, false, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars. This is an interesting section here. And Paul confirms this. Yeah, that's, that's right. That kind of sets us back. Like, what? what is, yeah. It, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. I think part of the point here is that different people sin differently. And especially nationalities, different areas of the globe. I think that's true. Uh, and again, this is generalization, but I think it's warranted given what Paul does here. Take Vikings, for example, right? The Vikings loot and pillage, literally. Well, that's one way to sin, right? The, the Chinese just do it a different way. The Americans were excessive in greed and gluttony and pride. Russians overly admire power and brutality. These are generalizations, and Paul doesn't hesitate to make them. Now, you don't want to make flippant assumptions with any specific person you're talking to, but to establish the church on Crete, which is what Titus's job is to do, it's really good to install leaders who know about Cretans. <laughs> know your kind of people and how your kind of people tend to go off the rails. That's the kind of leader you want. They know what they're looking for. That's, what, that's why Paul is, is saying these kind of things. So, verse 14. Uh, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. I thought, I kind of gleaned from this, the point was to not be distracted from the truth. Right? I think the ESV also talks about... Um, uh, well, where's the, un, where's the disputed things? I guess that's in 1 Timothy. Let me skip back to 1 Timothy 7. Didn't have this in my notes. Scrambling a bit here. 1 Timothy, uh, I think it's the 2 Timothy passage. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. That's where it is. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, right? Knowing that they generate strife. Same idea there. 2 Timothy 2, 23 and verse 14 here in Titus 1. You've got distractions from the truth. Uh, arguments that might be kind of interesting and uh, sensational to our minds, but are they really helping us much? And there's all kinds of things like that. So uh, elders, uh, one thing an elder is supposed to do is, is to watch out for those kind of distractions. Uh, elders don't just correct error. They also ignore unhelpful discussions. <laughs> and I've seen this sometimes in, in various public figures that I've seen. When, I, when a controversy comes up, sometimes 
a theological kind of controversy online, sometimes I, I, I'm thinking, I wonder what so-and-so thinks of that. And so I'll go scan their blog or their writings, and there's nothing at all about it. I think, huh, they have nothing to say about this whole controversy. That might be saying something. If you're ever talking with someone, just more on a one-to-one level, if you're ever talking with an older, wiser Christian, and you notice that they change the subject, pay attention to that. Because often, when they're older and wiser, they're changing the subject on purpose. Right? It's like, and they're being tactful about it usually because they're older and wiser. But, but they're like, this isn't all that helpful to talk about. Let's talk about this instead. Right? Elders are good at guiding the discussion so that we move towards talking about something that's important. What we talk about matters. There's a thousand subjects for us that we could talk about. And, and there are fires going on, right? If there's a fire going on next door, we don't want to be standing around talking about the weather. So there are fires going on in our culture. There are fires. There, there's pornography online that is devastating the spiritual lives of many young men. Get on that in your own family and in your own life. There's the transgender revolution that's being pushed on young school kids, and it's confusing and deluding them into lies. Find out who's running for your local school board and vote for those who oppose that trans ideology. There's fires going on like that. Here at Christ Church, we have not so much like damaging fires right now, but, but we need elders, we need volunteers for various things, we need fellowship. Uh, it's not that we're not doing those things already. Do them more and more. But those are, there are important things to focus on at certain times. And elders tend to be keen on seeing what those things are. So don't be distracted from the truth, verse 14. And then verse 15, don't be defiled against the truth. This one's interesting. To the pure, all things are pure. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. Here, I think the idea is that some of the Cretans, as they see this new group form, they want the group to focus on their hobby horses, and they're really spiritually defiling things. That means just thinking about some things is defiling. Uh, our, our sinful nature is kind of attracted to the seedy, to the unseemly, to the perverse, and elders are examples who focus on things that are good and true and beautiful, whatever is uh, good. Think on these things, Philippians 4 says. So uh, keep your mind, keep, your, keep the group focused on the truth and on helpful things. And verse 16 closes by saying, you'll know them by their works, basically, right? Jesus says the same thing in, in his teaching. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. So uh, the selfish or the greedy nature of false teachers will become evident over time. Well, let's continue on in 1 Timothy 5. I want to just keep right on going uh, there and look a little bit more closely at the, the work of elders along with pastors. Uh, verse 17, let the elders who rule be counted well among, uh, excuse me, who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Uh, this is an important text, I think, for figuring out how elders and pastors work together. And I like, I like to put it this way, kind of a bumper sticker. All pastors are elders. Not all elders are pastors. That, that's something I believe. Not, not everybody believes that, 
Some people would say pastors are not elders. Then you're into what you call a three office situation, right, of view. Uh, I'm more of the two and a half office view. I'll talk about that in a minute. But that's the way I see this and and interpret this verse, verse 17. All pastors are elders, right? Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, right? So all the elders are ruling. That's the idea. But then the rest of the verse, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So it seems that not all the elders labored in the word and doctrine. That's the idea. So not all elders are pastors, if you want to give it that name. That's the idea. So elders are all called to rule well. Some are laboring and teaching and preaching. That's the idea. So you have the pastor who's articulating doctrine in public teaching, and the Belgic Confession puts it this way, if you want to look back at that to... Uh, for, for proof of what I'm saying here. The pastor articulates the doctrine in public teaching. The elder, uh, to use Belgic language, I'm just looking at the bulletin again, the elder is um, correcting uh, evil men, uh, holding them in check, right? There, there's, a, there's a direction, like we're, we're going to decide that this is what's right, right? So if you're outside of this, then nope. <laughs> That's kind of the el- elders make decisions like that. Uh, pastors are more doing the speaking, the articulating in, in words. So that's the idea. Now, there's an Old Testament parallel for all of this, which is kind of interesting. I wanted to explore that a bit with you this morning. The Old Testament parallel is this. All the priests were from Aaron's line, right? For the t- tabernacle and the temple. The priests who made sacrifice, they were all from the tribe of Levi, specifically from Aaron's line. But not all Levites were priests, right? Only some of the Levites were of Aaron's line to offer the sacrifices, right? The rest of the Levites, they were um, engaged in service in the temple, in the tabernacle, right? They make sure everything's ready for the service. A lot of them guarded the gates. That's a function we don't think about often, but there was that function. Some of the Levites were security detail, watching the doors, looking for trouble, armed to deal with it, right, to, to a T. We've done some of that kind of work uh, here in that area lately. Feel free to ask about details if you want. So uh, there's an Old Testament parallel there. So uh, now that doesn't uh, fit exactly because um, the, the Levites who aren't priests, they function more like deacons for us today, if you notice that, right? It's the deacons who are usually the ones who get everything ready for the service, uh, and, and are uh, more on, uh, on guard, not, not so much the elders. So it's, a, it's an imperfect parallel, but you see the same kind of function going on. Anyway, all pastors are elders, not all elders are pastors. And that's what we call two and a half office. The two offices are elder and deacon, right? And then within the elder office of shepherding and ruling, some of those are also pastors, So a pastor is an elder who's shepherding and ruling, plus probably doing full-time work, preaching, counseling, administering, whatever else is involved. So that's that's the idea of elders and pastors working together. Uh, In verse 18, Paul clarifies what he means by by that they're worthy of double honor. And he says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So uh, pay those who do this for a living in other words. And this usually means we're paying a pastor enough so he doesn't have to get another job so they have time to devote to preaching and pastoring. 
And sometimes the church is too small to be able to do that, and the pastor might work another job, part-time or full-time. But that's the idea, that the church ought to aim for that. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And I'm going to keep expositing right through verse 22 here before we quit. So don't receive an accusation against an elder except if there's multiple witnesses. Uh, The idea here is to keep elders safe from the frivolous charges that are going to come. And they're going to come. Uh, Charges against elders and pastors often come. Uh, When people want to go to another church, they'll find a reason to blame the pastor. In our American kind of baptistic milieu, this is often the case. The pastor defines the church overly much. Overly much. Too much, I'm saying, right? We don't want that here, right? You should be coming here as much for the fellowship with others as for the pastor's style or preaching. Uh, But for many, that's not the case. Uh, The church is pretty much all about the pastor. So if you aren't satisfied with the church for some reason, then it's the pastor's fault. And I've seen this at several points in my years pastoring. Charges have to be handled judiciously. Is it, is it one isolated person and no one really sees the problem? Well, you can't even consider that, the verse says, right? There need to be multiple witnesses. But if others see the same problem too, then you take it up and you consider it. And then sometimes the elders will dismiss it. Sometimes it's, it's minor. Maybe it's worth a minor admonition to the elder at the session meeting. That's the kind of thing that might happen at a session meeting. Or, verse 20, if it's serious enough, uh, then verse 20 applies. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. And I mentioned that last time, so I won't spend much time on that here. Uh, Verse 21, I think, is, is critical. I charge you before God, before Christ, I think it's critical because of the way Paul introduces it, for one thing. It's a charge. He invokes God the Father, God the Son, and the elect angels. Whoa. What is he going to say? Observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Oh, this is so important. And there's, with the fledgling church that was growing up with Timothy and with Titus and everywhere throughout the Mediterranean as Paul was planting churches, you had all these new groups that were vulnerable, like I said before, to exploitation by those who would want to pursue their own interests. No partiality, Paul says to Titus and to Timothy. Uh, I'm just going to pause and give you an example of this. Just street level, real basic, something hopefully I think you can understand. Because this isn't just back then. Partiality happens today in churches all the time. right? So in a past church, I was um, teaching piano lessons to a few of the family members. One of them was an elder candidate. And so one Sunday morning, he returned a book to me at church, and he says, hey, there's a check in there for you too, by the way. And I'm like, what? And it turned out it was for piano lessons. It's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But if you're jaded and cynical and looking on at that, well, that's probably a bribe so that he gets ordained. You see what I mean? We don't... It's kind of hard for us even to think about that kind of level of corruption happening. But um, the the Roman church perfected that kind of corruption throughout the Middle Ages. Simony was rampant. Uh, So 
so you're, you're jaded and cynical, and you think that's a, probably a bribe to get ordained. Or the check is just the market price for piano lessons, and there's nothing corrupt about it at all. But there's opportunity there for partiality, you see. There's a lot of that in small churches like ours, and we need to be very vigilant about it very careful. So church leaders need to take care not to be prejudiced towards a man for other areas of his life, right? Just because you golf together on Tuesdays doesn't mean you don't hold each other accountable at the session meeting if a legitimate question arises. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Another way to look at this, mutual accountability, is from the story of, of David being anointed king in 2 Samuel 5. I love this story. Uh, there's an, an analogy in the church, and this, I hesitated to use this because it can seem self-serving. The, the analogy I'm making here is that um, the elders of Israel are the elders of the church, and King David is the pastor. I think there's a decent analogy to make there, but uh, trust me, I'm not envisioning myself as King David or anything. Okay, so put that aside. But, but think about this analogy, right? The elders call for David, 2 Samuel 5, verse 3, and they, ador- uh, they anoint him king, right? In a church, the elders call and ordain a pastor. It's a very similar dynamic. And when Saul is anointed king, I think this is 1 Samuel 8, God has Samuel teach Israel the conduct of a king, it says, right? So God doesn't just have Samuel ordain Saul king and then, okay, Saul, do whatever you want, right? It's not not like Saul's the dictator now. He can just do anything. Kings can't just do anything, right? Pastors can't just do anything. Same for elders, same for anybody. and And this is where constitutions come in, right? We have ours in writing, uh, online even, what the elders of this church expect of themselves, what they expect of their pastor, what they expect of their members. You can see our formal accountability to each other there. We want rule of law in our country. We talk about that politically, right? We don't want a dictatorship. We want rule of law, not rule by uh, personal fiat. And it's the same thing in, in an earthly sense in the church. We don't want rule by a person, whether that's a pastor or an elder or Mr. Moneybags or whoever. No. Just like in business, we want to write out the contract. And so David does this in 2 Samuel 5. It's verse 3. He makes a covenant with the elders in Israel. Almost for sure that meant some writing of what's going to happen. Right? In the same way, in 1215, the nobles in England forged a Magna Carta with King John. Very similar dynamic. Define the king's responsibilities and rights. Well, uh, anyway, you you see the mutual accountability idea there. That's what's going on. Uh, Another analogy I like to use is that pastors and elders are a little bit like fathers and mothers. Uh, And again, this is not a perfect analogy, but I think it works in some ways. You have more than one person in authority over the group. Right? And they need to get on the same page to lead the group well. And they need to hold each other accountable, to correct each other, Uh, probably not in front of the kids, but you want to be doing that so that you can lead the group well. That's the mutual accountability idea here. Uh, Moving on quickly, verse 22. uh, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. Don't share in other people's sins. 
So uh, this also applies very directly to us right now, right? We have one pastor, uh, we have a pro tem elder, but he's far away. Uh, so what do we do? Well, we, we could have scheduled an ordination for this month or for November to get somebody in office, uh, but that would have been too hasty, right? It's, the word is literally hastily. It made me think immediately of the Lord of the Rings and Treebeard who said, we can't be hasty, right? Don't be hasty. That, that's important. Why is that important? Not hasty means get to know them really well first, right? Now, as an aside, I don't think this really applies to our, our pro tem elders. They're more outside consultants for a while. So uh, it's good to immediately have more than one guy uh, um, officially uh, on the session helping that guy, like right away, right? But you want to move deliberately, not hastily, toward having someone here in this room in that session helping that uh, one elder or pastor. So that's, that's what we're trying to do uh, specifically. But to, but to move on, uh, the elders among us, and I'm going to put this really strongly, Think about this. Before you vote for an elder, um, you should have several substantial conversations with him. You should have interacted with his wife and his children. You should have related to him less formally than at church. Be in his home. See him more informally. Uh, Because people can pose at church, but it's harder to do in other settings. And that's really important. We are decidedly not of the mindset that an elder just has to be a big donor or a big thinker or a good talker. And one of those, that's good enough. No. An elder is not a a corporate board member who flies in every few months and makes decisions and gives the CEO pastor his marching orders. Uh, No, an, an elder is a shepherd, an example among the flock so, so in-depth character assessment is vital. Is the man's character consistent across different parts of his life? Well, I've only ever seen him at church, so I guess I don't know. That's something to, to pursue. So no hasty ordinations because of that reason. Uh, another phrase there is don't take part in the sins of others. And that's, that's part of the same idea. You, you ordain someone too hastily, you're not aware of a few things. And all of a sudden, you're taking part in the sins of others. So, or you can be so desperate, you, you want to have an elder on board so badly that you overlook glaring faults in a man. Don't want to do that either, right? So several ways to apply that. But I need to draw us to a close here. Um, just one uh, personal reflection uh, on uh, pastors and elders working together. Uh, Psalm 133 came to mind. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's a great verse. Um, but, it, but it's one of those verses that's not just good to hang on the wall and it kind of feels good to read that. But as you go through life, that, that verse just uh, deepens and enriches. Because you see sometimes, you, you live through times where you don't have that where there's no unity on the session, for example, or in the church. And half the church is on this side. You know, half the church wants to do this for COVID, and the other half of the church wants to do that for COVID. Yikes. Lots of churches have been in that situation. Very thankfully, we didn't really have much of that. And then you read this verse, and you think, oh, God has been so good to us. 
to, to give us unity. That's really, really good. And, and you ought to know that as a session, uh, pastors and elders, it, 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 we work hard at this, but it's often a challenge, right? Younger pastors, I've been a younger pastor, sometimes with more academic knowledge, uh, right? I, I, you can have a harder time respecting older elders. It's because you think you know more, right? Or older elders with more experience have a hard time respecting green rookie pastors. <laughs> that often happens too. And the leadership team working together well is a microcosm of the church body. It's, it, it's what all of us are supposed to be doing, deferring to each other even when you feel like you know better. Right? That, so God sets it up this way so that the, the, plura, the, the multiple leaders have to do what the church has to do. And the leaders have to do it first and be an example to the church. That's the goal. We often don't do it well. And that is a great grief to all sides. It, that makes me think of the, the hymn we sing, um, O God of Earth and Altar, right? The, the phrase in there, our earthly rulers falter. That happens. We, we see that in our political world. Sometimes we, you know, in, in that realm, sometimes we even like to take delight in the ways that the, those on the other side of the aisle falter, right? That's not so good to do because we need leaders that don't falter. And how much more in the church? Well, uh, I'll stop that little rant. Just uh, practical steps here at the end. Practical step and, and kind of a, a, a revelation about what we're looking at here at Christ Church. The practical step is get to know each other. Get to know each other. Ask probing questions. Uh, I, one thing I really, uh, again, I'm not saying this because we're not doing this. Uh, one thing I really love is how long our fellowship time is going, right? We'll get in the car at, in the parking lot after the last person leaves, and we're like, it's that late? Whoa. And that's, that's kind of a good thing. It's like we're, we're enjoying spending time together. Keep that up. I can sense everyone's having conversations uh, that, that aren't just superficial. That's what we need to pursue more and more. As you do that, you get to know each other. You organically get a sense of who among us are good examples for the rest. That's only one thing that happens. It's not the main reason. I mean, you're also finding out, oh, that person could help my son with this. Or There's all kinds of ways that that kind of fellowship helps. But that's another one is, oh, they, I wonder if they'd be a good elder. Uh, so that's, that's part of the practical thing you can do. Um, we would love to break with our history, if possible, here at Christ Church and have more than one or two elders on the session with the pastor. That's something that's a goal of ours. I don't know if that's feasible. We'll, we'll, that's something we're going to pursue, but maybe not. But that's something we're thinking about. And that's part of why I started off talking about our one current elder candidate. This sermon, this series isn't about him. It's about all of us discerning how God is leading us into the future together. So the church needs elders. We need to silence false teaching, we need to point the church to the truth, to work with pastors to rule well with mutual accountability. This is how God sets up his church for Christ to be most glorified. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would continue to grant us wisdom and direction as we pursue your leading. Uh, we see this, Lord, in our families, uh, where 
fathers and mothers aren't on the same page and so have a difficult time parenting well. We see it in the church where church leaders are divided and so the church falters. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grant us that unity that your word speaks of, to be like-minded so that the body can function well together. Thank you for the ways in which that is already occurring in this congregation and throughout the world in your church. We give you thanks for that. We trust that you are uh, building your church, as we sang earlier. We ask that uh, as we do so, we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Thank you, Lord, for uh, his example, as he is the example that leads the leaders, that leads the rest. Uh, Give us all understanding. and a a desire inflamed in our hearts uh, to be thoroughly Christ-like in all that we do and say. We lift up our prayers to you in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word. And so we sing as he taught us to pray. As we come to the table, I'll read first from 1 Corinthians 10, 15 to 17. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The uh, comedian Tim Hawkins does this funny routine about mothers who are overly concerned for their children, even when they're mad at them. Teenager comes home two hours past curfew. She says, where have you been? Don't you know what time it is? And then she breaks off and sighs and says, have you eaten? She's also concerned about him, even though she's also mad with him. God is sometimes like that. However displeased God may be with the straying of his children, he remains keen to provide in compassion for them. Have you eaten? That's what this table is all about. It's why we emphasize this here. You don't earn this table by avoiding the worst sins this week. No, this table is for those who are repentant of any sin. It's free grace all the way down. There's not some floor where... Well, if you've done that, then we don't want you here. No. Free grace all the way down. So here's something new you may have not have considered before. We prefer having elders distribute the bread and the wine to you. Why is that? Because every now and then someone is so distressed that they hold back and they don't partake. And the elders are looking around, making sure. Have you eaten? We want you to come and welcome to Christ. We all need to partake of Christ to be healthy. It's good to be a part of a church body where we're looking out for each other to make sure that's happening. So I ask you, have you eaten? Are you eating? Come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. 
Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.